Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, with the podcast known as Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. Well, we're back here for episode number 23. I'm here in the Crow's Nest here in downtown Oklahoma City. It is a wonderful, beautiful fall day. It's been nothing but 70s uh, lately, and so that's got me excited. But I'm also pretty pumped because I'm getting a return visit from someone who put together a podcast with me earlier in the year that was one of our most attended, most listened to podcasts. So of course, we have to bring her back. And that's uh, Maggie Martin. Say hello to everyone again, Maggie. Hello. It's so great to be back here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, I am excited to have you here. And last time we talked about HIPAA and confidential personal health information, but we're going to take a little bit of a zig and zag today and talk about something that uh, for someone like myself, you, you hit a certain age, you know, I'm, I'm 47 years old. You get in that time of your life where you start thinking about, you know, uh, your parents and people that are close to you and, and end of life issues that you have to grapple with somewhere down the road. And One of those things that you start thinking about is uh, a durable power of attorney. A lot of us have heard of that that particular document, uh, and we know uh, some of its uses. But uh, Maggie's here to talk to us today about some really uh, kind of seismic changes, really, in Oklahoma as it relates to the use of uh, durable powers of attorney and how those have been uh, eliminated in some respects and, and what you as a consumer of, of healthcare rights out there should be thinking about and you in the business uh, community should be thinking about, particularly those of you that are in the healthcare sphere. So, of course, having Maggie here to talk about all this uh, makes complete sense given the fact that she is a valuable member of our healthcare transactional practice group. She has a practice that encompasses is taking care of a number of healthcare provider clients. She takes care of them on transactional issues as well as regulatory issues. And of course, she's got some keen insight into what we're talking about today also because of the time that she spent as in-house counsel at Integris Health, uh, where she had a focus on patient care issues. And so she's used to and accustomed to these types of issues coming up. So Maggie, that sort of sets the stage, but let's, let's kind of drill down now into these issues. And I think the best place to start is let's just get a fundamental understanding of really what a durable power of attorney as it relates to healthcare issues is. And then we'll talk about some of the big changes that have come down the pike recently that change how those documents are used. Sure. Happy to give an overview, Adam. So essentially, a durable power of attorney with healthcare powers is a document that an individual, someone who is a patient or someone who expects to be a consumer of healthcare services, can execute essentially setting forth the, their wishes for their healthcare. Typically, it's going to, they're going to nominate someone to make those healthcare decisions for them when they no longer can. One of the beauties also of a durable healthcare power of attorney is that it can become effective upon signing. So if the patient can still make healthcare decisions, or maybe they don't have the ability to make healthcare decisions, they can still 
still appoint someone to start making for those decisions for them right away. This is typically really valuable when you have an individual who may have diminished capacity because of a medical condition such as dementia or maybe some sort of other terminal illness. Uh, you know, a case where an individual has a good day and a bad day. They can make decisions some days but can't make decisions other days. And in those instances, a durable power of attorney is a really helpful document for that person to nominate someone to just kind of take over their care, eliminate that worry and know that, hey, my loved one is taking over my health care for me and they're making those decisions for me on a daily basis. So that's kind of the beauty of a durable power of attorney for health care. One of the other options that the Oklahoma statutes had afforded under the durable power of attorney law was the right for that agent that was appointed to make the patient a DNR. So they could essentially say to the physician, hey, now that this person can't make decisions anymore, I know that it would have been their wish to have been made a DNR in this certain circumstance. And and DNR, you were talking about do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate. So that do not resuscitate document that says, hey, if if my if my heart stops beating, if, if I'm at the point where my, you know, my life is ending. Please do not continue on with CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And that's obviously one of the most difficult decisions that mm-hmm. anyone can engage in. But but so much better to be making that on the front side than trying to do that in the on the backside or, or, or not make the decision at all and see a loved one perhaps go through pain or, or additional treatment that they would not have wished to, to endure. So I, I'm I'm struck by all of this. The durable power of attorney, as it relates to healthcare, um, you know, is a, is a pretty valuable tool in the toolbox for individuals out there that, that want to take care of family members. So I'm I'm struck by the fact that your recent uh, advisory that was sent out to our clients through the healthcare group and, and the business community in general alerted us to a big change. And I'm not sure many people have even heard about it. And that's uh, HB 2548, which is the Uniform Power of Attorney Act. I think it becomes effective November 1st. But tell us what one of the big takeaways is uh, as it relates to the durable power of attorney. Well, yeah, uh, the Uniform Power of Attorney Act that was recently passed essentially repeals all of the durable power of attorney provisions that had previously been in the Oklahoma statutes. And it was those durable power of attorney statutes and provisions that actually granted the right for an individual to appoint someone under a durable power of attorney to make health care decisions for them. And they just repealed they that repealed out altogether. That. It's gone. And the new Uniform Power of Attorney Act specifically states that it does not apply to healthcare powers. The new form document that was included in the statutes also provides within that document that it does not apply to healthcare decisions. So it's very clear under this new law that there is no longer the ability to appoint someone to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. And it sounds intentional. I mean, the, the form was altered. The language was put in there expressly uh, denying that a, as a continuing right for patients, which, you know, means that there had to be some intentionality to this decision being made. Speak to, though, if you will, does that mean that all durable power of attorneys that were signed prior to this effective date, do, uh, do they no longer have any effect? No, durable power of attorneys with healthcare powers that were signed 
and executed prior to November 1st are still valid and can still be relied upon. Granted, they have to meet the conditions of the law as it was when they were signed. So there are a number of execution requirements that they will still have to meet, um, but they can be relied upon. However, if an individual goes to get a durable power of attorney after November 1st, they won't have the ability to appoint someone to make healthcare decisions. Yeah, so that makes November 1 a critical time for healthcare institutions to make sure that they're monitoring what documentation they should be intaking for those decision processes. And then obviously for individuals that are thinking about their loved ones, that again becomes a critical date for them. And and the next critical feature for all of these, uh, all the above, is what's the alternative? What should people be looking to, rather than the durable power of attorney with healthcare decision-making, what's its uh, surrogate? Right. Yes. I think we're, we're looking now at what our options are and what are other ways that patients can actually nominate or appoint someone to make those decisions for them prior to them being unable to execute these forms. So one of the best options is the Advanced Directive for Healthcare, which is basically an end-of-life decision-making document. When the Advanced Directive Act was passed, it, it set forth a form where a patient could kind of declare their wishes for end-of-life whether or not they wanted nutrition, hydration, withheld or withdrawn. Um, they could appoint a healthcare proxy to make those decisions for them. And then in 2006, that Advanced Directive Act was expanded to allow that healthcare proxy to be able to make general medical decisions for the patient. So those Advanced Directive documents can be executed and patients can state in there that they want their healthcare proxy to make general medical decisions for them. However, there is some difficulty with that document document in that it only becomes activated when a physician and a second consulting physician certify that the patient does not have the ability to make their own healthcare decisions. So basically when they are incapable of making their healthcare decisions, it does not become effective immediately or prior to their incapacity. So that's a big deal. I mean, we were just talking earlier about durable power of attorneys and how that helps out for someone, say, that was going through chemotherapy. They've got good days. They've got bad days. That individual might not be certified to be have reached that level of uh, you know, lack of cognition to be able to make those decisions, but they would have been able to receive a durable power of attorney. But here, two different physicians would have to certify that and probably couldn't. Is that fair? That would be fair, yes, depending on the patient and their status, um, especially when they're in the hospital. It would just depend on, you know, whether the patient could make decisions that day or whether they couldn't. And also, we're not even just talking about patients in the hospital. We're also talking about patients that may be going to see their primary care physician at the clinic or patients that are having some sort of other outpatient procedure or something that's not as intensive as being an inpatient in the hospital. They want someone to go with them, obviously, especially when they're dealing with a terminal illness, to, to have them help make healthcare decisions for them. And then, of course, one of the, the big that can be addressed through the durable power of attorney with healthcare decision-making is the DNR. Where, where does the DNR stand uh, as it relates to the advanced directive? There is the ability under the advanced directive to authorize the healthcare proxy to make the patient a DNR. But again, the patient you know, has to be that qualified patient under the advanced directive. Well, so it, it means that <laughs> there's some important changes that have happened here that maybe people don't even know about. It, it kind of 
puts in my mind the question, how'd this happen, Maggie? You know, obviously a lot on the legislature's plate that there seems to be a tinge of intentionality, but any thoughts on how it came to pass that a traditional tool like that durable power of attorney uh, has gone by the wayside? We're really not certain. I think a lot of it may have to do with the fact that this last legislative session, a lot of the focus, especially in the hospital area, was on managed Medicaid. I think those that typically monitor these laws, I mean, that was a big issue this last legislative session. So a lot of focus was in that area. And I think because this initiative was likely led by non-healthcare individuals, I think this was just something that people just didn't think about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, knowing that that may exactly be the case, any thoughts on, you know, whether individuals who are concerned about seeing this um, right evaporate, you know, is there any recourse for them? I recommend that you reach out to your legislators and actually speak to them about issues you have about this. You know, there's always the hope that this could be reinstated, that we could have these powers back. I would I would love for that to be the case, especially because a lot of my um, hospital clients are really struggling with how do we deal with this? How are we going to really work with patients without these documents in place? They've been very helpful for healthcare providers and hospitals to ensure that the patient's wishes are being carried out and that the people that the patients want to be making decisions for them are making decisions for them. And ultimately, I think that's what we hopefully can all agree we should be pointing towards, hopefully maybe with a little bit of grassroots movement and and reaching out to those legislators. Maybe we'll see this revisited in the future. In the meantime, there there is another safety net that I think we should at least mention in, in our preparation for today's podcast. It was my first time to learn about it, but that's the surrogate decision-maker law. Uh, Explain to our audience today how that works. Correct. The surrogate decision-maker law essentially is kind of another option for patients that present to the hospital and maybe not be able to make healthcare decisions for themselves. So if they are unable to make those general medical decisions, physicians can look to a surrogate to make those decisions on their behalf. Now, granted, they can only make general medical decisions. They cannot make end of life decisions, but they will look to an order, individuals in an order of priority, typically starting with the spouse, then an adult child, a sibling, and so on. You know, if you get to the point where there are no family members that can make those decisions. You can sometimes look to a friend to make those decisions on behalf of the patient. So there is that surrogate decision maker law that gives that authority to that individual to make healthcare decisions. However, by the time you're at that point, the person that's selecting those individuals is typically the physician. They're going to look and see exactly. what, what family is around, who's been involved in the patient's care, who is most likely to make those decisions. And that may or may not be the individual the patient wanted to be making those decisions. Which is what makes it an imperfect safety net. Correct. But at least there is that other piece that's involved there. Well, uh, you know, I am struck by all of this that, you know, this is something that Americans and maybe human beings in general don't do a great job of talking about end of life issues, but maybe this will spark a conversation amongst our our audience members with their family and obviously for our business clientele as well in the healthcare settings about, you know, trying to make sure that we get this right because uh, it, it is extremely important. And I would note that, you know, not only is today's discussion important, you know, for our, our hospital clients out there, but really for those of you who are individuals and are thinking thinking about estate planning issues. That's why we have a section within 
our firm dedicated to private wealth and closely held business, uh, essentially our estate planning folks, that they take um, issues like this into consideration as well. So really, you need a holistic approach to this. And I appreciate you, Maggie, for bringing it to everyone's attention. So before we close things out, you know, when we were together last, you participated in the fun game that I have created for this podcast, Get to Know That Crow. And we learned about your horticultural skills, but now we need to learn about uh, something else uh, about you because you're making your return visit here today. And so uh, I thought I'd uh, dip into something that I learned about you recently. You're uh, a bit of a a Jeopardy uh, fan enthusiast. Is that that fair? That is correct. My husband and I are very much into Jeopardy. We Obviously, it comes on in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm here slaving away at my desk, helping my clients, but we do record it. And so every night when we go home, we watch Jeopardy together. And sometimes our kids join us, sometimes they don't. Uh, But we are very much into Jeopardy. We were very sad about the death and passing of Alex Trebek, but we were interested very much in the succession of guest hosts that they had on the show. Oh, I know. It's been a parade of people. Have have you picked out a favorite amongst those that have been doing it over these past few months? Well, I'm really pleased with with the host they've selected Maya Bialik I think she's been great and it's been fun to watch her obviously we enjoyed a lot of the other ones Aaron Rodgers was one. Oh yeah we missed LeVar Burton his his time his run on the show was during the Olympics but um, it's been a lot of fun to really watch the show and you know we we tend to compete with each other a little bit he, my husband's a musician so he's he gets all the music answers and oh, of so course, of course you know we, we think if we could go on the show as a team we would be fairly successful as individuals no way yeah i feel like i could too <laughs> except my team would probably have to have 10 to 15 people on yeah, there, you know exactly but, so but it does beg the the final question um which is you know uh, understanding that he might run the, the the table on music questions who's the overall champ in your family when it comes to jeopardy actually it's my son <laughs> he's a sponge and we've been watching with him lately and he will remember things from school that I were not on my radar. He's actually been pretty impressive lately. So I have to give kudos to my 12 year old. You know, that's the way it goes. Our aging minds forget what those 12 year olds pick up. Well, Maggie, it sure was great to have you back as a guest on the show. And I want to thank you for educating all of our listeners on this new legislation that, again, will go into effect on November 1st. So it's right around the corner. And if this impacts uh, your business or uh, just your your personal family and the decisions that you want to make uh, for the good of those that you love, then now's a good time to be you know reaching out to those that can help you out. Folks, feel free to shoot us an email at brieflylegal at crowdunlevy.com. If you have any questions or if you'd just like to request an episode topic, and really don't forget to follow the podcast in your streaming service of choice, as well as any of the firm's social media pages. Well, that's a wrap for now on this beautiful fall day, and I look forward to joining you next time here on Briefly Legal.